Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you not entertained? Hello and welcome to History in Technicolor with me, Wolf O'Neill, and someone taking a drink. Me, David Crowther, just coming off mute. David, what have we uh, picked for everyone today? Well, it's interesting you should ask me that, uh, Wolf, because we have decided to do those deeply historical analytical movies, The Life of Brian and The Holy Grail. Fascinating. Uh, Looking forward to this. Uh, It was a pretty fun uh, research period. So, David, when did you first become a fan of the Pythons? Well, I came late to the Pythons, uh, Wolf, because actually I thought they were really rubbish. And I really didn't like the sketch shows. And I thought all the surrealism was a bit daft. And I didn't find the picture of a bloke with a hanky on his head sitting at a desk in the sea saying enough, something completely different, even remotely amusing. So I came late to the Pythons because... Dan Thorley and I, Dan was in fact called Ian, but we called him Dan. I have no idea why. Sounds like a Python sketch. (laughs) It does in fact sound like a Python sketch. I did ask him and he said, I don't know really. Anyway, um, so we went to the Odeon in Loughborough, I think, uh, to see Life of Brian. I think we had to sneak in, because I think it was 18. I'm not sure. Or maybe that was Flesh Gordon. Anyway, moving on. Um, we once found all the Flesh Gordon movies uh, in a charity shop on uh, video. Is that right? Yeah. Is that right? We didn't get into that one, has to be said. They said they'd let me in, but not my weedy mates. Anyway, um, obviously, I was very glad I wasn't allowed into that. Shall I move on? Yes. Um, so we went, I went to see Life of Brian, and I have never laughed so much before or since, the entire auditorium, and people don't laugh in Loughborough, by and large, the entire auditorium were rolling around in the aisles. Everybody absolutely lost it in a way I've never seen before or since. And that was 1979, of course, or I think so. Uh, So 
that was where it started. And then I went back and looked at some of the sketches and that sort of thing. How's about you, Wolf? Um, you're a younger man than I am. Yeah, so I think I was somewhere around 15 years old. And uh, one of my friends, Mike Spencer, I think, um, had a DVD copy of The Holy Grail and was raving about it. Um, must have been influenced by his dad. And I remember we all put it on and it immediately became the greatest thing we had ever seen. Um, rushed to show it to everyone, take it to as many sleepovers as possible. And then immediately it was into Life of Brian to a lesser extent. Um, uh, what's the last one? What's the third one? Uh, the Meaning of Life. Yes. Which has one fantastic line in it. But apart from that, I didn't really, didn't particularly take to it. It was kind of all right, but it was kind of a sketch, show, wasn't it? Yeah. So then obviously we went through and then we started watching, uh, it had the DVD of the like greatest hits collection of uh, the Flying Circus. Um, so yeah, to be honest, and then ever since it was, uh, and then it would like follow their individual careers. So watched a lot of Terry Gilliam movies. Um, yeah, just hooked immediately, fans ever since. Okay, so I've got two things to say. First of all, the greatest line in The Meaning of Life was... Uh, are you talking about the Wafferth and Mint? Not quite, actually. I prefer the line before that, when he goes into the restaurant. It is Mr. Creosote, though. He goes into the restaurant and he says, I'll have a menu and a bucket. And I think that's a more, an immortal line, which I have been tempted to use so much. And it's so hard to go into a restaurant and not use that line. So hard. Uh, and then the second thing was that I have a theory mm -hmm. about Monty Python sketch shows, all right? Mm -hmm. My theory is that they are a good deal better in the repeating than they are in the original. So I think I watched the National Cheese Emporium sketch in complete silence. But when I went down to the pub later, we howled. Repeating Interesting. And that's what we did at school. You know, we went to school and repeated all these sketches and found it incredibly funny. And all through my life, you know, like that, there's a not the nine o'clock news sketch where they say, when three of us are gathered together, we shall perform the parrot sketch. And that's kind of like what it, that's kind of what it's like. Yeah. I, um, in preparation for this, I watched a few of the sketches. Most of them I still remember, but I also think sometimes they're better in my memory than they are when I watch them. Yes. I rewatched the priest. And I went in like, yes. And it was still pretty funny, um, but it wasn't quite what I remembered. It was it just becomes something different in my mind. Yeah. Um, I think that's, yeah, I, mean, I don't know what it is, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that they're clever, but surreal. And therefore, when you talk about them, when you, you make them funnier by your enjoyment of, the, of them. And I think, anyway, it's a general rule in life, it seems to me that, um, other people's enthusiasms help you see the beauty of things or the, the cleverness of things or the comedy of things. But anyway, that's another discussion. Indeed. Um, one fun fact for you. I was familiar with Graham Chapman's work prior to ever being a Pythons fan because my favorite band in the whole world, as you full well know, Iron Maiden, he appears uh, in their music video for Can I Play With Madness? It was like his last ever acting gig. And I was very familiar with that music video before I ever knew who the Pythons were. And then the second link to Iron Maiden, they finish every single one of their gigs with Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, played through the sound system. So 
too many of the greatest moments of my being have all taken place while that song plays as, you know, 20 or 30,000 sweaty people stumble out of a venue, <laughs> elated. Yes, it's a very good song. Uh, if you're feeling rotten or something you've forgotten, uh, it's just, you know, an immortal, immortal series of lines, isn't it? <clears throat> One other anecdote. Um, I'm quite interested by the fact that you do like it, and it was immediate, because we recently introduced somebody who will be nameless, but is in fact Mr Johnson of 22 Acacia Avenue, Liverpool. That, by the way, is a Monty Python sketch. Um, we introduced Monty Python to somebody, a young, a young man, and uh, we were all there, and the whole crowd of the family was sitting round this uh, unfortunate man while we looked at him, waited for his reactions, and he did not get it at all. This is the life of um, this is the Holy Grail. It meant nothing to him, and it was a moment actually of deep embarrassment and awkwardness. So we went on to uh, Bill and Ted, and he really enjoyed that. So I wondered if, and we'll discuss the question of whether we're still a Python-worshipping country later, but, you know, I wondered whether it's got lost with the younger generation. I guess it's possible that I was um, bouncing off the energy of friends who were already excited by it and then right. was within a group that wanted to discuss the sketches, rewatch them over and over, find all the... Because there's so many jokes happening so quickly one after the other you can it's very rewatchable and you can pick up on different aspects of it so maybe it was uh, that kind of collective um viewing which helped but i don't know i appreciate that kind of humor anyway yeah i mean i must admit this young man was under uh, enormous pressure i'm sorry i seem to be slipping into a sort of fake yorkshire accent i'd like to formally apologize for that i think it might be the the, the python influence uh david who's your favorite python uh, this is a very good question, and I've pondered it long and I've pondered it hard. I think the thing about the Pythons is that they work together as a team. I saw a a documentary on them, which was deeply disappointing, because it seems that they didn't really like each other that much. Then that's the wrong thing, so they did like each other. But comedy is hard work, isn't it, by all accounts? Rowan Atkins always says that, doesn't he? Um, and... I think their creative energy had some stones in it and that that produced the oyster, some grit, a better word. Uh, so, you know, I think John Cleese always felt a bit bit superior to everybody else and they thought he was a bit of an arrogant what's-it. So there were friendships, but it wasn't all plain sailing and fun. So that's one answer to the question is I'm not sure I prefer any one of them because they are a group, I think, and they didn't exist without all of them. Uh, but if I were, if you forced me against the wall and threatened a knife point, I think uh, Terry Jones. That was my answer as well. Yes, because he's a thoroughly nice man, and um, you know he loves his history too, and he's done some quite good things, I think, on medieval history. So yeah, yeah. why why do you you like him most? Well, obviously, in addition to him being. Uh, a lovely man, I find myself laughing more consistently at his performance, almost regardless of what's happening. He just has a very funny face and a very funny voice. I just always, I just think, I just, I just go to him first. My second is probably Eric Idle. Um, He's very good. Too. I very consistently yeah. laugh at almost anything Eric Idle does um, in the Pythons. 
Uh, and then I guess the third one I put down is that Michael Palin is just a, a really nice chap. He is. Actually, I saw a, a very interesting, I don't know if this should stay in, but I saw a very interesting edition of Staged. Have you seen that? No. You should see it. It's a lockdown thing where David Tennant and Martin Sheen play out trying to do a play. And anyway, keep watch it. It's good. And one day they're joined by Michael Palin, who, when the producer has gone, is incredibly rude to both of them. We, and it was an absolute shock. You know, it's, you just don't imagine uh, Michael Palin being nasty to anybody. Um, and that was very funny, actually. It worked really well. Staged, you should you should watch it. Oh, but he was being nasty as part of the joke of the show rather yes. than... Okay. absolutely. Yes. Sorry, I was like, you broke my heart. What are you doing? Yes, I know. <laughs> okay, David, uh, since we've been talking about uh, The Flying Circus, uh, what would be your top three sketches? Okay, my top three sketches. So I did some extensive research on this, actually, uh, watching a whole load of things on YouTube, although I think the rights owners are closing them down a bit. Um, So um, I've got more than three. First one is the four Yorkshiremen. Mm -hmm. And it's not actually really a Python sketch. It's got some... uh, some non-Pythons in it, whose name I've forgotten for a moment. But we all, we used to repeat that in the playground absolutely constantly until, you know, I, Lord knows. So that, everything had to be, we had to lick the road clean with tongue every morning sort of thing. So is that the one where they live in the cardboard box or in the drain pipe? That's it. <laughs> cardboard luxury. Uh, yes. Yeah, we very good sketch. Very good sketch, because we're always being told by our parents that when I was that age about the war and how lucky we were to, you know, to have Brussels sprouts, which, you know, we didn't believe, obviously. But So what about your first one? That's one from me. What about one from you? Um, Maybe it's an obvious one, but I always immediately think of the upper class Twitter of the year, which is obviously the one that yes. I sent you. Um, yes. Fondly remember it from a first viewing. <laughs> it is very good actually it links also to an element of python there's despite the fact they're all pretty well healed there is a, a definitely an anti-establishment vibe to the whole thing isn't it because they also did an appeal from the super rich or something which is also very funny i, I can't remember that one I'll, I'll have to you might i'll have to go watch more yeah look it up it's um it's quite a late thing i think it's very funny uh, what were the other ones that you uh, selected? Okay, so my second favourite, I think, is the Philosopher's Football Match. Ah, oh, that's brilliant. Okay, that's really good. <laughs> very good. Yeah, it's very good. Yes, very good. Anyway, yeah, so what about your second best? Um, I have a really soft spot for Olympic hide-and-seek. Oh, I don't think I've seen that. I must look for that. It, it, it's it's not, I wouldn't, maybe it's not even that funny, but something about the concept of it just makes me laugh so much. <laughs> yes, I'm laughing. I've never seen it. I'm laughing at the concept. It, like it, it lasts for over a year and then he finds him in a cave in like Sicily. <laughs> I th- I think they. I think I think they start in Piccadilly Circus, and he has to like he covers his eyes and has to count to sixty, and the other guy just runs and jumps on a bus. And then there's some. 
Oh dear. Very good. I mean, I can imagine. I can imagine. And there are so many shots of the of the guy who's the seeker, just like <laughs> opening bin cans, just like like bins <laughs> randomly around the world, like looking for him. <laughs> oh dear, that sounds fantastic. I should look that up immediately. Yeah, it's a good one. Very, very good. And then I was a bit torn about the third one. Uh, I showed the Battle of Pearl Harbor, which I thought was very funny, just because it was so basic um but maybe the fish fish slapping dance because mm. I, I don't know it's just so utterly i don't know bizarre and out of place uh i don't know i just love that um <clears throat> i i went for bicycle repairman um, I don't know that one either. Yes, yeah, it's the what one, one where Michael Palin is a superhero, but he his only skill is that he can repair bikes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent concept too, because you know we always have that discussion. You know, I don't know if you have it, but I have it with plenty of people. So, what would your special power be? So this, I don't think I, and in the I sketch, in the sketch, there's this guy riding his bike, and you know when they speed up the footage, and he crashes, and his bike's broken, and then it goes, "Quick, bicycle repair man!" And then he he dashes in, repairs the bike, and then the guy's off what? again. <laughs> oh dear, excellent, fantastic! Actually, we haven't mentioned the. Big, oh no! The, actually, the one I meant to mention was the novelist. Have you come across that? Uh, what happens in it? <clears throat> what happens is there's a there's a whole stadium, and you can hear the crowd roar. And it's about uh, lo- local lad Thomas Hardy has come to, come to write a novel in front of the crowd, and they they give the whole commentary thing as he tries to write Jude the Obscure or something like that. It's a, oh, he's gone for the oh no, he's crossed it out. He's crossed it out. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's very funny. Uh, yeah, my f- if I was going to do a fourth one, it was the Granny Gang. Uh, that one I really remember. <laughs> yes, they do love the whole Granny um, dressing up as women thing, don't they? <clears throat> and it's got to be said the women wasn't weren't really wasn't really their greatest thing, wasn't it? But um, they did love the dressing up. And then I guess I don't know a fifth one just to throw it in. I because I, I forgot it before, but I love the spam sketch, and I'm always thinking about. Spam de spam, the wonderful spam. Well, then that was another one that went around the playground when we were we were always talking about spam. The other one that related to that was the one with pork, and I couldn't find it again. Mm. Where it's not the quiz show pork one, but it's another one where they're sitting on a sofa and they keep saying pork. Then eventually he asks her a question and she says pork. And she says, "Why did you say pork?" I panicked, and the concept of panicking and the fact that you're panicking makes you say pork i just sound very funny i don't think i've seen that one i'll have to look it up i couldn't find it it. anyway we should get on with the legend of arthur shouldn't we well take us away david you're doing the holy grail right the holy grail monty python and so it was made in 1975 it has a rating on the Aggregator shows like Rotten Tomato so of 97%, um, 8.21 IMDb, pretty good. Um, it came after the, C- the Flying Circus series started in 1969, apparently, 
uh, four series, although the last one was a truncated one because John Cleese had left. Um, so it was the it was the second of their films actually, but I've never seen the first film, which is kind of a collection of sketches, I think. So mm. uh, you know, quite different. And and in a way, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a series of sketches held together by a central idea, isn't it? I mean, it's it's key thing is obviously um, a succession of gags um, with this uh, with this theme. Um, so the the story is, of course, that uh, follows the Arthurian legends. Uh, they're out to find the Grail. And they come across a whole load of uh, obstacles in their ways, of course. And it, they follow, it follows the format of an Arthurian legend. You know, they have challenges and they have to overcome those challenges, which is very uh, Christian de Troyes sort of format. Uh, but the <laughs> challenges are uh, completely ridiculous. So I think you pose the question, Wolf, but I'll ask it to you. Which of the trials in the quest of the Holy Grail would be your undoing? Mm, interesting. Um, I mean, I think arguably any of them you could... I mean, I don't think I would survive many of them. <laughs> but I think my answer was that I would probably fall foul to the rabbit because the rabbit <laughs> is, on. is the toughest. I Well, then I remembered there's the cave monster, so I thought, okay, actually, maybe the cave monster's harder. Right. But right. I thought I probably couldn't defeat the rabbit. Um, but I think mo- maybe most realistic is I ultimately would I ultimately would perish on the bridge of death, uh, yes. flounder over a very simple question. Absolutely. What is your favorite color? Yeah. What well, I don't know. I mean, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. If they if they gave me harder questions, I might survive. But if they gave me a simple question that's like a choice of preference, I'd, yes, I'd be you'd be dead. jettisoned. Who was it? Was it Robin who said pink? No. Uh, was that Robin? Anyway, one of them did that, didn't they? Yeah, um, well, two of them die, don't they? I have a feeling they do. that Michael Palin might go off as well. Yes. I, it's like, actually, I can't remember. Blue. No, yes, green. That's, <laughs> that's delightful. Uh, in fact, one of the funniest things about the entire film is just Michael Play- Palin saying, I seek the grail. At the Bridge of Death, actually. For some reason, that absolutely cracks me up. Uh, The challenge that I would have failed at most was from the knights who, until recently, said knee. Um, And I've often spent quite a lot of time, actually, wondering about how you would go about cutting down a tree with a herring. Ah. Now, obviously, they they did deny that challenge as just silly, but, you know. So uh, I don't know what more you want me to say about the movie, really, as a movie. It is, I mean, the thing about the film is that it's just, you said about going back to Python over and over again, and that's the thing about all of this, it seems to me, is that the Holy Grail, you can just go back and back and back and, and see other things or just laugh at the way they do it. You know, the coconuts thing is just you know, constantly funny, the way when his horse gets shot by an arrow, uh, falls down and says, message for you, sir, and then dies because he's got an arrow in his chest. You know, the fabric of it, just every second is kind of funny. There's funny stuff there. But anyway, yes, the, the funniest sketch 
I can't ever get away from uh, come and see the violence inherent in the system. Yeah. You know, Dennis, the anarchist, is enormously funny. Um, but then there's the holy hand grenade of Antioch, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the number of the counting, uh, two thou shalt not not count until you, unless thou then proceedeth to three. Five is right out. I mean, it's just... Yep. The, the discussion of the orangutans and then the breakfast cereals. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, there's so much in it. And of course, part of it also, I think, is why I wonder about whether it retains its relevance is that quite a lot of it feeds into a, sh- a shared experience I have. Um, so we have a, um, a mate we work on for things that made England, and he doesn't like Python. He says it's a bunch of posh guys. Well, I am, unfortunately, a posh guy. Um, but one of the things that I had, they don't have to be posh to go to Sunday school, of course. And that re- quite religious language, that quasi-religious language, and those, you know, all those lectures you had at, sun- at Sunday school or I had at Sunday school, um, that religious language they find very funny, and that that's the reason why the Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch is just absolutely cracks me up because it takes him back to Sunday school. Well, I was going to if you if you wanted to ask me what my favourite sketch was, yeah. Oh, I thought you'd said yes. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go on. Um, well, I guess it's because I wrote down too many answers, but I, I just have to say that I absolutely love the historian who crops up randomly in the movie, and then my favourite bit is when he gets killed by that knight. Oh, right, the night it comes to that does my head in actually. That's the one criticism I have on the film, funnily enough. So it's interesting you like it. That the thing about the film that I found a bit distressing, and maybe I'm just too literal, is the fact that I don't think they know how to end, and I I don't like that historian bit and the dropping in and out of time because for me, what makes it so funny partly is that. They do this thing utterly seriously. You know, they never say to each other, you realise we're not on horses, we've just got coconuts. They never say that to each other or let on. They're completely serious about it. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so funny. And therefore, this historian time shift thing and the end where they get all arrested just messes that up for me. So it's fascinating that you like that. Well, see, I I was going to ask you, how do you feel about the ending? Because I don't like the ending with the police. I find it, I hate I find it dissatisfying. Um, but I separate the historian from, I can see the connection, but to me, I view it more as we're being presented with this really silly story. And then it's given additional credence by this interjection of the historian who is very seriously analyzing what's happening. Um, So I find that very funny. Obviously, it doesn't make any sense, but I, I think it's just, admittedly, the, the bit I laugh about the most is when the historian, the when you realise everything meshes and the historian gets killed by the knight, and then it's when his wife like, screams his name and like rushes to his body. Um, I don't know why, I just find that very funny. Also, just... <laughs> what, what does that say about you, Wolf? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, don't think about that too hard. But yeah, I don't know. To me, I can still enjoy the historian, even though I don't enjoy the ending. Yeah. Well, it's interesting we agree about the ending as well. So shall I talk very briefly about the um, the legend, the historios- historicity of it? Yeah. 
Okay. Well, actually, there are plenty of articles around saying, hey, it's not as unhistorical as you think. There really were horses made of coconuts. No, they don't say that. Um, but the myth of Arthur is itself a series of different myths. And I know people say, for example, that people reinvent Shakespeare for the purposes of their own time. And so Henry V, for example, in The War and the Kenneth Branagh one. And assume it's the legend of Arthur is very similar, actually. The very first mentions are around the 5th and 6th century uh, BC, um, which is earlier than most of the medieval legends we're used to. Um, and the first, then in the 9th century, you get the Latin history of Britain, Historia Britonium, by a Welsh monk called Nenius, uh, mentions a warlord called Arthur. He fought 12 battles against invading invaders, including the big one at Mons Badonicus, which actually gets a mention, uh, the Holy Grail. Um, and actually, interestingly, if there is a um, if there is an Arthur, he probably appears in an odd 50 year hiatus in the record of the Anglo-Saxon advance into Britain around about 530-ish, for about 50 years, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doesn't record any advances. And people have built theories around that, saying that maybe a real Arthur won this battle at Montepidonicus and held the invaders back for 50 years, and maybe the legend grows up around that. But the big break, Arthur's big break, came under a chap called Geoffrey of Monmouth, who wrote a book called Historia Regium Britanniae, which is a massively good book, which you need to read, not just for the Arthur stuff, actually, but also apparently Brutus um, founded Britain. Um, mm. And it's it's barking mad, but people believed it. So actually, Geoffrey Monmouth's history was very much accepted and used by various kings actually to justify various actions but it's a very different kind of Arthur to the one we're used to and the one we're used to was really invented by a chap called uh, a French poet called Christian de Troyes who wrote a num number of Arthurian romances in the 12th century. Is that Garland and Green Knight? No, Garland and Green Knight is a 13th century Middle English poem, actually, as it happens. But it kind of does the same thing. That follows the uh, the sort of format of Chrétien de Troyes, these, these challenges, this um, the tradition of courtly love, the things that we imagine about Arthur, the pavilion and uh, the people coming to challenge them to, to, uh, to battle, the the Black Knight thing in the Holy Grail, you know, when he says, just scratch, all that sort of stuff, which, again, has been reenacted on playgrounds all over England for, you know, decades. And then there's a 15th century Thomas Mallory, the Mock Arthur, who collected all these, these ideas and these stories into one place. And, you know, there's been countless other adaptations since. Uh, there was one by what's his name, um, Lock, Stock, and Two Swake, and Guy Ritchie, uh, mm. quite recently as well. So, 
so it's it's absolutely sunk in that tradition of the legend of Arthur and all those tropes come up, but it's in the historical romance version, probably more than the original early medieval tradition. Funnily enough, at the beginning of the film, they give a date, and now I'm struggling to remember what it is, but I oh, think it was 936. I think it's 932 AD. 932, okay, 932 AD, which is a very odd date, and it's always worried me, because nothing happened in 932. I'm pretty sure it's during the reign of, Athelstan, of Athelstan, and nothing happened, and it's far too late for any potential historical Arthur it's far too early for really the kind of the get-up they have, although they, are, they do have male rather than plate armour, so that's kind of probably most people would have been wearing male and uh, most uh, warriors would have been wearing male. But then you wouldn't have the knight thing because knights were... I mean, there there is a, a tradition of knights in English history, but a knight was a companion of a lord. It's not quite that same ro Arthurian romance thing, which is a bit like, which comes from Christian de Troyes. So it's in the tradition of Christian de Troyes, I think, rather than, uh, as I said, the earlier things. Uh, and you've got all those things like the padam, so uh, quests and challenges, as we've said. Um, Robin and his minstrels, you know, which again always makes me laugh. Um, you know, when danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail on head. He bravely turned his tail and fled. Classic stuff. But that's kind of historical. You know, minstrels are a very important part of a, a knight's uh, companions, as it were. The depiction of medieval life is kind of... Well, I've got some pros and um, cons to it. Obviously, there was recurrent plague in the Middle Ages uh, and there were famines which killed countless numbers of people. On the other hand, we see medieval life in much more miserable terms than it would actually have been like. If you want to know whether what the real Middle Ages were, when people really were murdered for no reason, it's the early modern Europe is what you're looking for. Mm. So I'm a bit in two minds about that. So anyway, the thing is, it is part of a tradition and it uses all those tropes mm -hmm. and there are things in it which you can say, ah, oh, that's kind of historical. But of course, in the main, it's absurd. Um is there any evidence of someone building a castle and it falling down and building another castle and then that falling down? Well, yes. Interesting enough. In the Geoffrey of Monmouth version, that's what Vortigern does. He builds a castle in the swamp um, and Merlin appears in the story because he wants to know why it keeps falling down. So he asks this wizard Merlin who turns up and said it's because two dragons, a red and a white dragon, are fighting underneath the swamp. Um, something like that. I may have garbled it slightly. But yes, absolutely. Vortigern is king of all Britain and seen as a sort of an evil king. Um, and the white and the red dragon fight. And I think the white gets defeated by the red and the red is the Welsh dragon. Mm. Oh, yes. But he wasn't a Yorkshireman. Um, and... 
he didn't didn't cost them fifty pounds each for a for a guardsman. That whole sketch is actually one of my favorites in the whole movie. And I was just <laughs> I was just fondly remembering when his son is scaling down the tower on the rope and he goes over and just cuts it. <laughs> and then you get that nice little ten second pause where you're waiting for the sound. <laughs> That's very good. Well also he he shoots an arrow out of the window, which is one of my favorite bits. Yes. Where I said, Message for you, sir. <laughs> also, it, it barely pulls the string back while he's looking the wrong way. Yes. And it goes, That's and it's a real classic doink, and it just <laughs> pops out the window. Very good. And of course, the classic, I'm not dead yet. He is now, sir. Anyway, um, yes, very good. So what is your favorite sketch then of the of the film? Well, I probably have to agree with you. It really is Dennis. Um, <laughs> and it's... But I like every aspect of it. The slow build-up of the scene. Um, when uh, Obviously, he opens by calling him an old woman. He's like, man. Yes. <laughs> yes. You could have called me Dennis. <laughs> oh, dear, yes. And it is an absolutely classic. Yeah, I agree. Right, shall we move on to Life of Brian? Yes, let's move on to Life of Brian. Okay, so Life of Brian, which was made in 1979... Um, follows the hapless Brian Cohen, a Jewish Roman boy born on the same day next door to Jesus, who then gets mistaken for the Messiah and attempts to escape the spotlight uh, and the Romans. David, what do you think of the film? Well, as I say, when I saw it with Dan, we just we just howled. And there are so many funny things in it. Um, I think the difference is with life between life of Brian and the Holy Grail is that it has a coherence as a, as a film Mm. that the Holy Grail doesn't have. And also it has a message that the Holy Grail, Holy Grail is just pure silliness with some just absolutely grade A bulletproof sketches. The life of Brian has this quite interesting thing about, you know, belonging and hypocrisy and you know religion that sort of thing which the holy grail doesn't have so there's the lovely bit isn't there in you know the famous uh the second funniest line in in the british language where he comes out and, he, and everybody says messiah the messiah and his mum comes out and says he's not the messiah he's just a very naughty boy <laughs> yeah it's very good <laughs> <laughs> good uh, so in that scene you've also got say brian saying to everybody look you're all diff you're all individuals and then somebody cries from the back i'm not <laughs> or this is you know the bit where everyone too- in unison goes we're all individual yes, that's right. i mean there's that there's an edge to the life of brian which the holy grail hasn't got yes uh what's your favorite well, is that your favourite joke in the movie or your favourite sketch? Well, it is the second best line in British comedy. Um, I don't know that it's the... It's not my favourite bit, though. Mm-hmm. My favourite bit, but again, this is about shared experience with the Pythons, is the um, Romans go home bit on the wall. Yes. And that bit makes me laugh so hard that a little wee comes out every time. And it is because of the shared pain as a grammar school boy of doing Latin. 
at school and the complete pain of doing Latin and the incomprehensibility of Latin as a language. Um, what's all this then? Romanos and Domus, people called Romanos, they go to the house. I mean, it just, you know, as he says that, a whole flood of memories of pain, fear and distress. In my O-level exam, I had rocks coming down from hills because I could only ever translate nouns. And so I just had to link these nouns to each other. Um, I could never work out all the verb declension stuff was incomprehensible. And apparently it was a pastoral scene. I don't, I've never understood how I got a C because I knew nothing. So that is my favourite. But I, I suppose if you haven't done Latin, I don't know, is it as funny? Did you do Latin? No, I didn't. But I can understand from doing French and Spanish. I can understand the theory it behind it. It's a very smart joke. Um, very smart. Very smart. Very... Um, oh, what a laugh. I always find myself going to some of the silliest jokes. Those are always bits I remember the most. It is very funny when they subdivide into the gourd and the sandal factions. Yes. That is very funny. And I always yes. love the old man in the juniper bush. Um, the old man in the juniper bush. Yeah, well, no, the old man in the hole. You know, it all happens in the same scene. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Where he's like, I haven't spoken in 18 years, and they think it's a miracle. <laughs> like, that scene is so very good. On this rewatch, yes, though, cool. on this rewatch, yeah. I had particular enjoyment from the opening scene when the three wise men arrive. Um, yes, <laughs> especially when um, when <laughs> Brian's mum is asking what his star sign is, and uh, during the conversation, um, one of the wise men goes, "He's the son of God. He's the king of the Jews." And then she goes, "Oh, that's Capricorn, is it?" <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I also like the bit when they come back in and they just take the presents back and shove Mrs. Bryan into it. I mean, just, yeah. I don't know. That's, that's <laughs> and when, she, when she's like, oh, come back anytime, but maybe next time don't bother bringing the myrrh. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, very, very funny. There are lots of little bits. So, um, uh, I don't know, donation for an ex-leper, Ex-leper? Oh, he came and cured me, took my job away without the much of the buy your leave. You know, it's that lovely thing about being able to see things from the other end of the telescope that maybe a leper made his who made his liver his living by begging would have been a bit in a bit of a hole if Jesus came along and cured him. But actually the best thing in the whole thing has got to be blessed are the cheesemakers. Yes. I, honestly, David, every time I'm at any gig, large event, anything with a public speaker, in my mind, I'm always thinking, and I often say, did he say, blessed are the cheesemakers? <laughs> oh, dear. And then the guy from the Sanhedrin, or whatever he's from, saying, saying, well, no, I don't think he means, I think he probably means purveyors of all dairy products. And that just takes me straight back to Sunday school and the Reverend Walters giving me a sermon about the meaning of the Bible. Oh, dear. And then when they oh, get onto the oh. meek and they're like, oh, the poor meek, <laughs> they do have a tough time. Well, it's nice they've got something. Yes. Oh. 
Oh dear. Oh god. It's it's very good. Um, and then the last thing that I always particularly enjoy is when the presumably he's a slave survives the battle with the gladiator and then when he wins he runs around doing the football uh, celebrations <laughs> when he gets on the floor on his knees and then puts his arm up <laughs> and the whole crowd's cheering <laughs> oh i think i'm having a cardiac arrest <laughs> oh dude it's just snaps it. i mean also the throw him to the floor sorry sir throw him to the floor all right sir uh, I don't, it's I don't gold from start to finish. Every single absolutely, joke. Absolutely is. We, we, yeah. And this is what going to the pub is like. You just sit there and you talk through all of your favorite bits. You could go through the haggling. Um, yes. Ten for that, you <laughs> must be mad. <laughs> yes, that's very good indeed as well, yeah. Absolutely, yes. I mean, you're, you're right. This is the thing about both films, that you just... Oh, it's just stuffed full of gags, and you can go on forever repeating these bloody gags. Um, it's just it's absolute gold, absolute gold. So I think it should be noted when talking about this film, and I wanted to gauge your memories of this. Um, you already mentioned that you think it had an 18 rating when it came out. So the film was banned uh, in some places yeah. upon release, or was given an X rating in 39 local authorities in the UK. I even read that some local authorities. Ooh banned it even though they didn't have any cinemas in those local authorities and had never seen it uh they just went on word of mouth um i think it was banned in ireland for eight years and it was banned in norway for one year and then sweden sold the movie that it was they used the fact that norway had banned it as uh positive um marketing to be like um i don't know so controversial that norway banned this come and see this film in sweden but it was a box office sensation. It's got to be pretty. Um, it's got to be pretty controversial, surely, for Norway to ban it. Aren't they the the centre of reason and and light? Uh, Scandinavian countries. Uh, well, I can't quite tell if you're making a joke. No, I'm not. <laughs> we all love the Scandis, don't we? Yeah. Do we all love Scandinavia? No, I I do. Yeah, me too. But yeah, I, I just thought it was. I always knew that it was controversial, and I remember the that TV interview, the famous one. Oh yes, God, the thing with Malcolm Muggeridge. Yeah, being unbelievably pompous and up himself, and here is a man that certainly at the time, when I was, I was relatively young, but um, even I had heard of Mal- Malcolm Muggeridge and how incredibly respected he was. I don't know anything about him, to be honest, but, you know, very respected, very intellectual. And he was made to look and sound like a complete ass, a complete ass. You just thought, this guy is an idiot. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, I mean, we just, we, we, we couldn't be doing with it. I mean, uh, our age, we just thought this is just silly. You know, this is even more daft than being told Brussels are edible. Well, I wonder how much it played into the success of the movie and how much this controversy like helped build, you know, um, no publicity is bad publicity. Yeah, it might have been. might well have been. Well, certainly everybody was talking about it. I mean, it always seemed to me that it wasn't, in a sense, the Pythons were disingenuous in saying it wasn't disrespectful towards Jesus, although it isn't. You know, there's no insults about... Christianity per se, 
it's but it is disrespectful about religion or about some of the things that happen in religion and obviously you know there's a close parallel i can understand why you know deeply religious people might be upset by it i suppose yeah interestingly i was reading that um muggeridge and the other the other guy they were late to the screening of the movie they went to watch and they came in 15 minutes late and they missed the opening scene which and all the scenes with jesus so you realize that brian and jesus are separate individuals so they thought that the movie was um equating them both into one figure and thus completely you know destroying the figure of jesus which very revealing very angry about something you've never watched yes there was that but Sorry. You've, re- you've reminded me of the crucifixion um, process. Crucifixion, <laughs> yes. One cross each, first on the left. <laughs> oh, no, I've been let off. Oh, have you? Who? Oh, congratulations. Nah, just joking. <laughs> oh, dear. Fantastic. And then the song, of course. You mentioned the song, you know. Because uh, your Iron Maiden experience, yeah, of them playing "Always Look on the Bright Side of Death." <laughs> it's a great song. If you're feeling rotten, there's something you've forgotten. That's to laugh and dance and sing. Yeah, was it? Life's pretty shit yeah, when you think of it. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, very good indeed. So yes, I mean the controversy. I mean it. It faded. I don't know how long it lasted. It's a bit of a storm and tea, teacup, I suppose, but. Um, so you didn't I, never forget the pomposity of Malcolm Muggeridge. It did him for me for the rest of you know. And did you I see Mary Whitehouse mm-hmm. on the news picketing some of the cinemas that screened it? <laughs> Mary Whitehouse is very funny. We really, we really enjoyed Mary Whitehouse actually at the time. She was a real hoot. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't give either of them the rough end of a pineapple, and we wouldn't then. No, but yeah, it, it was it was an incredibly successful movie. Uh, I think I read that it was the fourth highest grossing film in the UK that year, and it was the highest grossing British film in the US. Um, oh, and then just in general terms, this film regularly now tops any poll of the greatest comedies of all time. Um, mm. It's respected by audiences and critics alike. Don't need to go into that much more. The, the point of the film was it's very interesting, like you were saying, compared to Holy Grail. This film has a lot of things that it wants to satirize, a lot of points of views that it wants to get out there. Um, and I was reading about its, well, the kind of culture of 70s Britain at the time and how it that they were very aware of the left-wing political groups, trade unions, guerrilla organizations. And that's a big influence for how they take them down in the film, as well as lampooning, you know, modern organized religion uh, in this kind of, uh, heretical attack on the church uh, and different people's interpretations of belief. Mm. So, it, yeah, it, I think maybe the reason it resonates... Well, we'll talk about this later. I would argue that it perhaps stands the test of time better than Holy Grail because so much of the parody still has resonance now. Yes. Although it's a little bit out of date, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, that all that... I don't know. Maybe this is wrong. All that I was going to say, all that left-wing communist fact, factionalism, kind of disappeared. I would have thought the more, 
you know, the bigger target now is, I don't know, neoliberalism or whatever it might be. Um, but I mean, I suppose there's factionalism and everything, isn't yeah. there? You know, it's a universal theme. I think different groups will come along and each of those groups, you can see them in the different yes. um, organizations being taken down. So it, there's a kind of universalness to yes, the comedy. True. In terms of history, obviously, we know the film is parody. We can't really seriously um, interrogate them as like historical representations, but it is very fun. And I, I read a lot of like theological articles uh, about the kind of about the history and the kind of impact of this film and how much people are still talking about it now. Obviously, it's based on biblical texts, religious traditions, and then interesting, which I hadn't at first considered. It's fully aware of all the kind of biblical movies that Hollywood has been producing uh, in the sort of 80 years prior to this. Um, and a lot of the referencing going on is, I mean, the Spartacus reference, I'm Brian and so is my wife. I mean, <laughs> oh, it's, a, oh, it's a killer, isn't it? It's an absolute yeah, it's killer. very good. Um, <laughs> So they were incredibly aware of the of general perceptions of kind of modern understandings of this kind of time period from all those biblical epics that we'd had, you know, Ben-Hur, um, Spartacus, etc. And they kind of raised a lot of that up to kind of tear it down. Um, so as I went through, generally from what I was reading, and maybe this is people being too generous... But it, it does create a semi-convincing sense of place uh, and is packed with a lot of little details and casual references. It's helpful having, you know, discussions of Latin and references, jokes made about the Assyrian Empire. Um, it was filmed in Tunisia to replicate the Holy yes. Land. So yeah. there's some attempt there. Uh, within, I was reading that uh, stoning was a form of capital punishment in the Jewish yes. criminal code. Uh, and it would have been very popular. But I read one article that claimed there were no examples of stoning as punishment for blasphemy and no evidence that women would have been excluded from attending. And this article raised the suggestion that what the film is referencing more is the, the general perception of Jewish violence and the marginalization of women that might have been perceived at this time in the 70s. Right. So I thought that was interesting if they were like, it doesn't come from yes. historical records, but it comes from stereotyping. Um, yes. That's kind of where those references are coming from. Then I looked through, well, you know, what the Romans had done for us. I was like, did the Romans really do all of that? So, you know, that is one of the, that is the one joke in the whole film that I have actually learned to find a bit irritating because that is so all pervasive. What have the Romans ever done for us? Or what has X, insert names applicable, ever done for us? And I've heard just heard that too many times now. I'm sorry, I don't want to put, bring up a negative, but I won't know. repeat it. But I, I, found, I went through a, a big long article about this um, and a few other things. So I thought it was it was fun. So the Romans didn't invent the aqueducts, but go ahead, David. What were they built? The aqueducts actually built before the Romans arrived. Well, obviously, 
everyone come out there and correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, because I am trying to squash this research down. I was under I the think imp- you can count on that. Yes. I was under the impression that aqueducts had been invented before, but that it was they weren't widely distributed um, mm. until the Romans came along, because it, it was such a pervasive kind of part of Roman uh, construction. Uh, and there's, you know, was distinctive to their civilization. So they definitely yes. bought aqueducts, uh, you know, around with them, but they didn't necessarily come up with them. No, I can quite well believe that. Um, being correct. They also get praised for their roads, which obviously we all recognize. But one of the counterpoints I was reading is that the Roman roads were generally military roads and generally long distance roads. So in local networks, like in and around Judea, there wouldn't have been Roman roads. People would still have been walking on their own local networks that they'd come up with. Um, But, you know, we do casually recognize them as incredible road builders. The baths did come from the Romans. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I was reading that, obviously, they didn't invent wine, but they did bring a lot of wine from other parts of Europe with them. So that would have been Mm -hmm. something that had been brought to that new land. Um, But just in general, I think we can all assume that for the point of the joke, it's to go a bit over the top. And I don't think we're really meant to believe that they genuinely bought irrigation, medicine, education, health, public safety to the people of Judea. Um, it's such a like hyperbolic statement to suggest that none of this was there prior. Yeah. So I just thought it was worth pointing that, makes, that out. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And are they really able to hide as cleverly in Judea as they do in the film when the when a, an, an entire century of Roman soldiers comes to hide, to search one small room. Uh, and there's that one place they didn't check. <laughs> What's so fun about the film is that it can have this joke, which is about how advanced the Roman civilization is and look at everything they've given to all these people. And then at the same time, the, you know, the Romans are all blithering idiots. They can't figure anything out. They find a spoon when they can't, they can't track down all these people. Like every single person in this movie is a fool. Yes. No one is safe. <laughs> yes, how did they conquer the world? Yes. Um, a couple of last points, really, really quick. Clothing-wise, uh, Pilate, yes, would have worn a toga, um, but I was reading that a lot of Jewish authority figures would not have worn high, elaborate headwear, except during right. temple ritual. Um, but this is something that happens in almost all biblical films. In order to, I guess, show an audience members quickly who's Jewish, they create this kind of stereotypical outfit for them. And then they're always presented in that fashion, even though it's unrealistic. There was no Colosseum in Jerusalem, as we all know. Um, I suppose. Good point. Good point. So, you know, they put it in because they want to reference the game. So they incorporate a bunch of this stuff in, but that's not accurate. And then I was reading an interesting discussion that the depiction of Judea in this film, with its troop garrisons, anti-Roman sentiment and oppression, is more representative of 60s Judea than 30s Judea. And that a lot of that came about with the with Nero's reign. So I could be wrong on this, but it's under the impression... That is very specific, Wolf. I was under the impression that... Because this film's set in like uh, 33... I think is it is. It? Oh, I suppose it is. I suppose yes. It yeah. Is, you know. uh, yeah. I think it's set in thirty three, but I think the main anti Roman uh, kind of uh, sentiment comes about in Nero's reign because he was particularly horrible. There we go. Very interesting. So yeah, it's the same thing you were saying with Holy Grail. A lot of the articles are like, oh, I read one 
Actually, I'll come to it now. So in 2014, there was a conference at King's College London called the Jesus and Brian Conference. Uh, yep. John Cleese and Terry Jones attended alongside a number of the most prominent um, like religious figures and theologians of the world. They convened in London and had this like three-day conference about Jesus and Brian. Yeah, academics Oh, as weird as religious sects, aren't they? And they really are utterly bonkers. And it, was, it was fascinating. I was reading so much about this. Um, huh. And there was a lot of really interesting stuff. And they discussed how the film has aided in the study of the New Testament. And I've seen some articles from uh, theological professors who talk about how this film is like what unlocks like theology to their students or the thing that they most respond to when taught at university. Um, but one of the quotes that I got from this article was that uh, at this conference uh, there was praise for aspects of the film's historical accuracy and a recognition that it surpassed the level typical of the biblical genre at the time, portraying some contextual aspects surprisingly well. Uh, And some of these aspects were the multifaceted depiction of empire uh, and the differential social hierarchy. And then overall the, the kind of the conference basically just argued that the, the Pythons inspired these, uh, this trend of questioning scholarly presumptions, as well as highlighting the problems of interpretation of a sort of 2,000-year divide. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. It, I think yeah. if you really want to read yeah. into the movie, you can. But also, you yes. can completely dismiss everything. Indeed, yes. And did, they, did this conference discuss whether Roman centurions uh, uh, said, throw him to the floor? Oh, I didn't see it come up, but I'm sure over the three that, days, because I read a very well, abridged a version, um, <laughs> it must have come up. Did they did they discuss how many angels you can get on a head of a pin? Good Lord. Anyway, there you go. To That's know how, how much fun I was having with my history research, I even I didn't actually go through with this, but during the, my planning, I wrote down, just double-check, did Incontinentia buttocks exist? <laughs> <laughs> And did he check if incontinent buttocks did exist or not? No, I, I didn't. I, f- I felt too silly. <laughs> no, yes, I think if you uh, start googling incontinent buttocks, you probably you might get arrested. You've got to watch that. Okay, so just to sum up, David, really quick. Um, yes. Which one of the two films is least unhistorical? Oh, I think Life of Brian is least unhistorical because at Agreed. least it builds. A, a framework which is probably reasonably accurate. yeah, and it has some real people in it. Yeah, whereas the life, the Holy Grail is bonkers. Uh, which one gives you? Which one has the most laughs? Oh, that's such a hard question. I don't know. I waver over this one. Which one's your favourite? I ah, I don't know. Sometimes it's the Holy Grail. Sometimes it's the Life of Brian. I think the Life of Brian is a a better made film. Mm-hmm. I think it's more professional. It's more coherent, and there are just as many gags. But I something about the Holy Grail. I love it. I love that there is no point. It's just joyous sketches and gags for the sake of joyous sketches and gags. And I love Dennis more than life itself. So I think I'm probably going to go for Holy Grail. But if you ask me tomorrow, I'll go for Life of Brian. No, I feel the same way. I think that 
from a neutral perspective, Life of Brian is the better film, but my favourite is probably The Holy Grail. Yeah, it seems we're ending up. I have a question for you, Wolf. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe the last thing we discuss, which is there is a Not the Nine O'Clock News sketch, mm-hmm. which I sent you, I believe. I think the Not the Nine O'Clock News were during the 90s. Very popular uh, sketch show. Very funny indeed. Rowan Atkinson, the chapels in Collins Sandwich, Mel Smith, uh, Pamela Anderson. Um, a fantastic show. Um, and they did this lovely sketch where they sort of aped the Malcolm Muggeridge interview, mm-hmm. but they switched it around. So instead of being it being about, oh, um, you know, this film, this film Life of Brian is a, a skit on Jesus Christ, they said, this film is obviously a skit on our hero, Brian, who this Jesus bloke comes into it. It was obviously supposed to be Brian, isn't it? An outrage. And it within the sketch is the line, you know, uh, <clears throat> should a film like this be allowed to be pro- produced in a country that is ostensibly at least still a Python-worshipping country? Which I thought was a very good and funny line. So, Wolf, the question I've got for you, are we still a Python-worshipping country? Okay. Uh, this was... I struggled with this. Because I genuinely, I don't, well, I don't know many people who are younger than me, so I have no idea if it's still something that they come across and they're interested in. I think overall, though, I would argue that based on how well their tour sold out sort of four or five years ago, and how popular the 40th anniversary of Life of Brian was, um, combined with the sense that I feel like we still regularly use the term like Python-esque to refer to any type of surreal comedy. And when I try and think of other comedy shows, even arguably, so not the nine o'clock news is like 20 years later. And that didn't really permeate through to me. I never really picked up on it when I was growing up. Well, you'd have been 10, wouldn't you? I was born in 90. When did they? Yeah, so it would have been too early for you. You'd have been... Yeah, but I, I, don't know, I think what I mean is, like, I, I still came... Maybe it's because it's TV, which is different, and th- through the Pythons, I started with their movies. Mm. But even though I'm, I've, you know, I've watched all of Faulty Towers, I guess Blackadder does pretty well, but I still think a lot of stuff that was coming out around the same time, it just doesn't seem to have the same impact anymore. It seems to have faded, mm. and it's remembered by slightly older generations. And whereas I still think that we can't reference surreal comedy now without everyone automatically thinking of the pythons so i would argue that we still are a python worshipping country but i do think it will change so you went to those reunions you you said is that right yeah we yeah we got tickets and went to the the o2 and were they good yeah yeah they were good um they did they did really good sketches and they did all the songs and you know they did all your favorite songs and they put them into big numbers with loads of dancers. And it was easy to, you know, it was, it was a fun, it was a fun thing, but it's probably not yeah. worth the money. Like it, you, right. you could just hang out with your mates in the pub and repeat all the same sketches. Um, <laughs> maybe that's being too <laughs> dismissive. Anyway, yeah. But what I mean is it's like, they just want to do the hits. So they're going to do the hits and you, you know, all the jokes anyway. So you're laughing ahead of time at the yes. gags you already know are coming. So I took Millie to see, I'm going to ask whether it's like this. I took Millie to see when she, she must have been 13, 14 or something. I took her to see The Stranglers in Shepherd's Bush Empire. Nice. 
um, used to be now the O2. Um, and we we sat upstairs actually because I was a bit worried about you know, I mean after all stranglers were pretty uh, were, were pretty punky anyway. Uh, but they were, of course they were ancient. And I looked over at one stage. I looked over from the seats on the balcony down into the mush pit, and um, it was the mush pit was unlike a mush pit I remembered. I may have told you this anecdote before i don't think but so rather than going up and down as you know much bits are supposed to do it kind of wobbled like a jelly because none of the people down there could get off the ground essentially and also the mush bit was gray because everybody had gray hair ah. was it like that i mean was it full of uh, old old dudes kind of the trouble though it's it's london and it's an expensive event it's a bit like when i saw the stones oh, in hyde park yeah. it's a lot mm. of uh champagne glasses like that's even if i didn't see them that's the impression i get like uh you know pythons give a joke and everyone's like ah (laughs) okay so it was so it was kind of like a bunch of old dudes remembering their youth like the stranglers concert in a way but maybe because of the fortune i guess i think for example i didn't go to the led zet reunion because it was something like 200 quid a ticket yeah, and, well, I entered the lottery to try and... Because you had to end, go into a lottery to get... And you could only get two tickets if you got picked at random. I yeah. attempted, but didn't manage it. But I did see some of the members of Led Zepp. Did I have ever told did you this? You? When I, well, because they sponsored the movies, didn't they? Well, it was when I... So I saw the Foo <clears throat> Fighters at Wembley Stadium. And Jimmy That's Page right. and John Paul Jones came on stage and they played... Oh, fantastic. Fantastic to track them. Uh, it was incredible. I cried. Superb. Yes, you would do. You would do. I've, I've, I messed up on a chance to go and see them at Nebworth when I was thirteen, mm. and I've regretted that ever since. Essentially. Anyway, we've moved away yes. from Python, haven't we? To uh, the other gods. Okay, so we're still a Python worshiping country, but the religion has surely got to die out at some stage. Ask the followers. See if uh, everyone yeah. else still agrees. We sure we should have that discussion. So do you think we should rate these movies or not? I, I ask because I'm not sure. I don't think so. I mean, well, obviously they're stellar, aren't they? You know, 10 for quality as films and 10 for historical accuracy. 10s across the board. <laughs> yes. In fact, 11s across the board. Wait, do we have to do Spinal Tap next? Yes, we have to do Spinal Tap. Yes. That we really ought to do, yeah. Yeah, has a drummer ever spontaneously combusted on stage? <laughs> I'll begin the research. <laughs> yeah. uh, very good. Okay, well, I think we're done, aren't we? Yep. Cool. I'm back to right. something well, more well, serious um, next time. Yes, obviously, something a bit more uh, more, more serious. And I think, actually, we're going to do, are we not? Are we going to do Zulu and Kingdom of Heaven? Yes. Isn't that what we're heading, heading towards? Yeah, now for something today? completely different. Now for something completely different, yes, indeed. Anyway, good luck with Zulu. Right, so thanks, everybody. Do come along to the Facebook site and comment, what is your favourite sketch? Are we still a Python worshipping country? How long will we be so? And air your views. Yeah, which is your favourite of the two movies? Which is your favourite of the two movies? Brilliant, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much for the topic, Wolf, and uh, thanks very much to everybody for listening. Bye then. Bye. Are you not entertained? Bye. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.